0: Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. This is Reset. I'm Jen White. Some critics say the modern feminist movement has left many women behind – women of color, trans women, disabled women, and poor women. In her new book, Chicago author Mickey Kendall unpacks that issue. It's called Hood Feminism – Notes from the Women that a Movement Forgot. In it, Kendall lays out the case that if feminism is going to deliver on its promise of equality, it has to address issues that affect all women. And acknowledge that those issues have a disproportionate impact on marginalized women. Mickey Kendall joins me now. Mickey, welcome back. Hi, thanks
1: for having me back on.
0: So, I want to start off by talking about someone you start your book with, and that's your grandmother. Uh, you say she was one of the most feminist women you've ever known, though she would never have labeled herself that way. Tell us about your grandmother and her relationship to feminism.
1: So my grandmother was one of those people who really believed in women having an education, um, being able to work, being able to take care of themselves. But what she saw from feminism was a lot of concern about issues that didn't seem to reflect her life, right? So you would see, well, how can I possibly take my husband's last name or whether or not I can find the right nanny for my kids, that kind of thing, right? She wasn't worried about being able to go to work. She'd always had to go to work. So to her, feminism was talking about things that were primarily focused on white women's needs and a specific category of white women. So therefore, it wasn't for her as a black woman living through Jim Crow.
0: So when you take a step back and you look at um, mainstream feminism, for you, what is the key issue with that?
1: For me, the key issue is that we are still trying to frame feminism as though everyone has access to the same opportunity the, the, the playing field isn't level so then when we say lean in and try to be a ceo lean into your career lean in to whatever and we ignore the fact that some women are still being penalized for wearing their hair the way it grows out of their head they're being kept out of the workplace based on their names their children or them have had struggles even accessing adequate education throughout their life. Food is still a concern. It's great to talk about wanting to be a CEO, but maybe we could make sure everyone has a a home and food and medical care and access to an education before we start focusing on whether or not this six-figure salary is a high enough six-figure salary.
0: Hmm. Well, in the book you write about trying to find your place or, or not really finding a place in feminism or womanism. Explain the distinction between the two and why they didn't quite work for you.
1: So if feminism is focusing primarily on white women's concerns. Womanism focuses primarily on black cisgender women's concerns. And there's nothing wrong as an outgrowth, as a, as a next step with womanism. I'm not downing that. But if we're going to move toward a more inclusive an actually helpful version of this movement that claims to represent half of the population, then we shouldn't exclude non-binary, trans, genderqueer people. We shouldn't exclude people who are femme, but not necessarily women. We should be looking at this gender as a spectrum and not as a binary. And from that same place, we should also be looking at things like sex work, other less respectable ways in which people are earning a living as something that is necessary based on where they are even if it's not necessary for someone who has access to a greater level of respectability a greater level of safety right we're not saying that cisgendered black women are actually safe they just may be safer than a trans woman of color
0: well and you write a lot about respectability politics in in the book um, at one point you write Quote, we can't let respectability politics, that is an attempt by marginalized groups to internally police members so that they fall in line with the dominant culture's norms, create an idea that only some women are worthy of respect or protection. In your own lived experience, how has that issue of respectability shaped how you think about these issues today?
1: So my grandmother was a woman who for lack of a better way of putting it, she she ran policy, Mm -hmm. ran numbers, basically. And she did it because money. And I understand that people will say, well, that's a crime. But we now have the lottery. So is it really a crime? Apparently the state no longer thinks so. The state only thought it was a crime when the state wasn't running it, right? And yet we know that financially, for many people, the decisions they're making are based off survival. I can't say, oh, my grandmother shouldn't have done that when that is the thing that made it possible for me to have food on the table, a roof over my head when times were hard, things like that, and then turn around and say, those people over there with fewer choices, they should make better choices because they should be able to access the things without choosing vice. Right. So when we're talking about, let's say, drug crimes, I know people are going to say, well, drug dealers are bad. Okay, fine, but have we ever looked at where drug dealers come from? I know that TV tells us it's a rich, bored kid. Reality tells us it's a kid with no options often. It's a kid who is in either foster care, some version of kinship care where the money is running extra funny, or no care at all, and they're having to figure out with no high school diploma – no safety net, how they're going to eat and where they're going to sleep every night. We can't give people a series of bad choices and then be upset that they picked the quote-unquote wrong choice when there is no good choice.
0: You also look at this intersection of respectability politics and rape culture and the way certain bodies are protected more than others or or the way sexuality is projected onto certain bodies in certain ways. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: So one of the things that tends to happen when we're talking about respectability and rape culture is that we we immediately ask victims of sexual assault what they were wearing, who they were with, where were they going, had they been drinking, and we tend to especially narrow in on that when we're talking about victims who are of color, who may be trans or non-binary. Well, you were tricking someone, so that's why you deserve that violent response. Well, someone being trans isn't a trick. That's just someone being trans and the person who attacked, attacked them is a violent offender. If we say, well, you were wearing the wrong skirt, you were in the wrong place. I didn't know I got issued a crystal ball with puberty. I could swear I thought I continued to be a human who gets to walk around. We position it as though somehow you can behave in a perfect way. To avoid rapists, when the problem is really that people who are going to offend in that way seek out their victims. They go as far as they have to to find the person that they want to victimize, whether that's breaking into someone's home or a bush or befri- befriending someone and then you taking advantage of their trust. The problem isn't that the victim didn't behave the right way, the problem is the rapist.
0: And how does that fit into? You know, these discussions we've been having uh, around the Me Too movement and a call for solidarity among women, where is the intersection there?
1: So one of the things that we have to consider is that when we say that some people have behaved poorly and thus it's their fault that they are victims, we're saying, don't rape me, I acted right, rape her, because she deserves it. And your idea of solidarity can't be to position anyone as deserving sexual assault, and I include people who have been been sentenced or going to jail for other crimes, whatever. We need to be looking at solidarity and feminism as a world where no one is being assaulted as the goal. As a world where we actually do something about the underlying mental health, social health, other conditions that may make someone think that sexual assault is okay. Because right now the message is that sexual assault is bad unless you do it to the right person. And then we're going to hand wave it, right? So you see this with Brock Turner, for instance. Everyone was horrified and appalled that this guy who was caught in the act got a slap on the wrist, but that's most rape cases. It was just that this time they thought his victim deserved more justice. Slightly. She didn't get the level of justice they thought she deserved. But no victims are getting much in the way of justice, less than 1% of assailants. I know we like to pretend that rapists go to jail because that's what law and order and other propaganda shows tell us. But actually what happens is less than 1% of rape cases result in a conviction.
0: Where do you feel the modern feminist movement has fallen down when it comes to uh, these issues you're describing around intersectionality, Um, and, and really centering the voices of underrepresented women.
1: Because we are so focused on success feminism, corporate feminism, right, we're not really talking about what it means to not be safe for some women to be positioned as available and rapable and disposable, really. And feminism is going to have to turn its attention back to those basic issues of safety and food and education and health, or else we're just widening the divide between groups of women. We're not solving the problem of what is happening to women. We're making things safer for some women in some cases, which ultimately endangers all women in all cases. Right? So all of the shock over well, I can't believe that this assailant didn't get anything happening to him, But then we saw Kavanaugh walk into the Supreme Court and people stand outside and say groping was no big deal. It's the same continuum. It's just that the power levels get higher from college student to Supreme Court justice. It's all the same problem, and feminism has to address it before we get to the point where the person making decisions about laws is a person with this long-running history.
0: Mickey, you describe hood feminism as lived feminism, and you include a lot of your own story uh, in this book. Why was that important to do?
1: I think that sometimes when we're talking about issues, they become so abstract, we forget that they affect actual people. And if I become the person in your head, or a person like me becomes a person in your head, when you read this and you think about these issues, they're no longer this amorphous problem for someone else to solve. They're instead something that you, me, we all feel a responsibility to address and to address consistently. And that doesn't mean that I expect people to stop what they have to do in their own day-to-day lives, but it does mean that when the time comes for that hearing about school closures in your area or school district boundary lines about closing mental health clinics, about any of the things that we've seen happen in Chicago as we – are now currently facing uh, the pandemic, we think, hey, if I do something before that becomes a major problem, if I speak up, even if this won't hurt me, but it will hurt other people, then maybe I can avoid making things worse. Maybe I can help make things better in my community for people who don't have as much as I do, who don't have as many resources or the time to go to those meetings, the ability to go to those meetings. Right? You can show up for your community, even if it doesn't necessarily benefit you.
0: There's a chapter in the book where you talk about hunger, and I just want to give people a specific idea of one of the arguments you make. At one point in your life, you were on food stamps. You were worried about being able to provide for your child and that you might even lose him. And you write, quote, it's hard to take a rich woman's children. It is remarkably easy to take a poor woman's though. And later you say you can't be a feminist who ignores hunger. Talk about why you see hunger and poverty as specifically feminist issues.
1: I see them as specifically feminist issues because they affect all women at different ways, but one of the things that we know, for instance, in America, is so that a home headed by a single parent is likely to be headed by a woman. She is likely to be lower income, even if she, on paper, has a higher wage-earning job. If she's not getting child support, if she's having to pay for child care by herself, so forth, so on, functionally, she has less money than a man in a similar situation because her pay rate is always going to be lower on average, right? We know that it's not just a question of correcting for the jobs. It's a question of correcting for two people, different genders at the same job with similar experience levels. He's often perceived to need the money more than she is. And so when we're talking about hunger and poverty, yeah, these are hidden issues and they don't affect every single woman, but we know that they show up in every community in America. We know that often hunger is invisible. Because unless you're in someone's house, you don't know what they're eating. And it's too easy, especially now, as we're seeing people talk about things like school lunch debts, to say, well, someone should be paying that. Yeah, but can she afford it? Can they afford it? What's actually going on? Because we know that for some people, they're already up against it financially just because they're not making much relative to the expenses of their life and sure you can say well why don't they move to a cheaper home or this or that but housing costs have gone up they may already be in a cheaper home than where they were but the rent went up child care costs went up their wages didn't go up so I feel like feminism has to be speaking to a living wage absolutely but also to better social safety nets for the women who are most at risk the pandemic the actual viral pandemic is A major problem but we're seeing other smaller public health crises develop that will become larger right we already know that people are going hungry we know that food stamps have been cut that people are losing their jobs and finding that the social safety nets that they expect of unemployment insurance um, help with their rent all of these things don't necessarily exist anymore right and with that poverty is about to be our next pandemic for many communities And it's not just a matter of reopening the economy. It's a question of what will happen to people who were teetering on the edge, what will happen to the people whose jobs won't open back up. Pier 1, for instance, is closing all of its stores. Where are those employees going to go? And it's easy to say, well, that's retail, and they can find another retail job. A retail job where? How many other stores are in the same boat? So when we're looking at this, for me, what's hitting me is that we don't really have a society that allowed for people to shelter in place and pay their rent and be able to eat and stay home and minimize the risk of transmitting this disease. What we have is a society that says we didn't build an infrastructure, but we need you to pretend you have that infrastructure right now. And if you don't, oh, well, we're going to reopen in some places in staggeringly different ways, and we're gonna cross our fingers and hope that it's enough and that we can make things right
0: this way. None of this is is easy, Um, and you acknowledge that in in the book. And what you're talking about in Hood Feminism is really a radical (laughs) shift in the modern feminist movement, a rebuilding of it. What do you think it would take to make that happen? I think at this point,
1: we have to be having these conversations openly and in public and with each other. I know there are people who will feel like this is airing dirty laundry that could be addressed later, but we're a hundred years in. Later has never come, right? So at this point, the conversation has to be about what we can do going forward, because in the six months or a year or 18 months, I've heard different numbers before COVID is theoretically addressed with a vaccine, right? What's going to happen to all of the women who don't have the resources to ride that out? What's going to happen to all of the communities that are those women are integral parts of if no one is able to take care of things in those places? It's easy to think, well, that's those people's problem over there. That problem is coming to knock on your door soon enough because survival logic is one where you get what you need to stay alive regardless. Right? We, we can't say that we're anti crime and we'd want to see people go back to work and not be, you know, lazy on handouts or whatever the rhetoric is going to be and then say, but we want you to starve for the good of society. We want you to watch your kids go hungry or uneducated so that the rest of us can stay comfortable. Or we want you for less money and no protections, no workplace protections to speak of to be the person that provides us with what we need to be comfortable and for you to take all those risks with no reward. It's an illogical stance, and yet we're trying to take
0: it. That's Chicago author Mickey Kendall. You can get her latest book, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women that a Movement Forgot*, everywhere books are sold. Mickey, it's been a pleasure. It's good to hear your voice.
1: It's good to hear yours, too. Thank you for having me on again.
0: And that's today's Reset. For more great Reset conversations, go to wbez.org slash reset. Hear stories about news, arts, culture, the coronavirus pandemic, and more. That's wbez.org slash reset. Now tomorrow, WBEZ's Becky Vv fills in as host and takes you through our big Friday news roundup. There's a lot of news coming out of City Hall and Springfield this week, so you won't want to miss it. I'm Jen White. Take care, stay safe, and let's talk again soon.